0: Good morning. Our central text today is found in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 7 through 12 and 24 through 34. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, And put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him. And said to him. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant. As I had mercy on you. And in his anger. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Clearly a very sobering passage uh, and just want to really invite and encourage us to pray uh, now just that the Lord would really show up, Uh, and we're going to go a little longer than normal. So, Lord, um, you have a funny sense of humor (laughs) in having your word go out through a vessel who is the biggest struggler in this area. And, uh, Lord, it is hard to forgive. It is a battle. I just do pray that this morning we would understand the true meaning of this parable of a debt that we cannot pay and how our lives can be transformed and should be transformed and shaped by that so that we can go out and forgive. So just, Lord, I pray um, for a sense of humility and sobriety and holiness and hope as we together all sit in this thing that we battle. We're not alone. We're all doing this with you. In your name we pray, amen. Beeson Divinity um, Professor Robert Smith, Jr., in 2010 got the call every parent never wants to get letting them know him know that his 34-year-old son tony was tragically killed and for him it wouldn't be the first time he'd walk through the valley of the shadow of death his wife had died when the children were younger and even he had lost his eldest son to a 15-year battle with cancer but this time would be different because, see, for him, this time it wouldn't just be the valley of the shadow of death, but that narrow, painful road of forgiveness. See, Tony was not supposed to be at work that night. He, he was planning to watch the World Series with his beloved Houston uh, Astros that night with his grandmother, but somebody didn't show up for work, so he did. He covered. And he had his earbuds in cooking that night and didn't know that the restaurant was being robbed. And when they got to him, they brought him in front of the cash register, and he didn't know what to do. It jammed. And because one of these 17-year-old individuals was hyped up on drugs, they sh- he shot him in cold blood. What a burden as a parent to bury your own child. But I, th- I think like anybody, it just is incomprehensible to add this burden of forgiveness. But in a, in a real gift this week, given the timing of our sermon series, what we're dealing with, He was interviewed just this week on Wednesday in the Gospel Coalition, and he said this. He was teaching six months later in Kenya, and he heard, he felt like the voice of the Lord, say, do you believe in forgiveness? Yes. (laughs) Do you teach and preach on forgiveness? I do. I want you to forgive Tony's murderer. Wow. And what he ended up doing is he started writing this man in jail. And he befriended him, and he told him he loved him, and that he forgave him. You know, the man never wrote him back for a while, because what do you do? What do you say? But he kept doing that. And that raised all kinds of questions, even in his own family. And he, quote, said, some of my relatives couldn't understand my love and forgiveness. I was not at all saying there are no consequences. No, there are consequences to sin and to wrongdoing, but we must forgive. Is it hard? Well, I say to people that forgiveness is not difficult. It isn't. It's just impossible without God. What does it mean to forgive? What does it really mean to really forgive? Why has God called you and I to do what is seemingly feels the impossible? Can I just have a caveat real quick before we jump in? Entire sermon series, books, courses, and seminars have all been done on the course of forgiveness. I cannot do all that territory in one sermon. We know that, right? unless y'all want to be here for five hours. But I have a funeral to do it too, so that's not even going to work out. The other thing I want to say is this. The church of Jesus Christ at times has used forgiveness as a means to perpetuate injustice, to look the other way. Sexual abuse, racial injustice. And it's complex, the subject, isn't it? And I think it's really important for me to say right now, forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. Forgiveness does not mean, especially in the case of a crime being committed, that justice is no longer pursued. And forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation is even possible, or in the case of somebody who's very unrepentant and dangerous, should even happen. Of course it should. So I can't, I want you to hear me. I can't, we can't do it all. We are going to pick this back up in two weeks. But for this week, I just want us to focus on this. What does it really mean to forgive? To rejecting it, because we all reject it. And then lastly, doing the impossible, we need to understand forgiveness is a marathon. It's a marathon. So let's take a look. What does it mean? Now, you know, questions abound today, you know, cultural questions about forgiveness, what does it mean to forgive, and does it promote injustice? But I'll, I'll tell you this. In the first century, there weren't a lot of questions for forgiveness because the first century, people didn't forgive. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. This, Peter prompts this whole parable, the parable of the merciful servant, by asking a question on forgiveness, but it was very rare for people to forgive because this is a shame-honor culture. And in a shame-honor culture, you got the moral high ground if you didn't forgive the person because now you've got leverage over them. Well, Peter was Jewish, and there were some rabbis that did teach on forgiveness, but they would say up to three times. So if you're going to forgive this outlandish thing called forgiveness no more than three times. Well, Peter, he's looking like the teacher's pet here, asking seven times. He thinks he's doing really well here. And, And part of that is Peter's watched Jesus Christ walk up to crowds and have compassion and mercy, okay? Peter has heard Jesus Christ talk about loving your enemies and praying for them. Even when the paralytic fell down, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. So he's heard Jesus teach on that. But when he says up to seven times, Jesus says, no, 77 times, or some translations might say 70 times seven. Jesus isn't using mathematics here. He's not just talking about a number. When Jesus says 77 times, it's a number of completion. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to know to infinity and beyond <laughs> that's how many times see here's the thing you and i look at forgiveness like a line don't we it's a line and then it ends and when you get to number five <laughs> maybe eight you're done forgiving isn't it but jesus sees forgiveness like a circle because what do you have in a circle there's no end or beginning and what jesus is saying is that in my kingdom forgiveness is serious business my disciples are called to forgiveness without limits, without placing any limits on that. And as flabbergasting as it is, it was certainly flabbergasting to Peter, thus the parable, because this is a hard doctrine. And so Jesus invites us to have our imagination stirred by bringing us to a parable that Jesus is clearly trying to say, this is really about me. Because he invites us into this scenario of there's, here's this king, and he's got this vast kingdom. And like any good leader, you know what, what do you have to do? You have to... You know, reconcile your books. He's conducting an audit. And you do performance reviews with your employees. Now, one thing that gets a little bit lost in this is you, you get this idea that this is, you know, a servant. He says a servant. And we think he's just some guy way in the end of the food chain. No. Uh, every scholar sort of points out that this is a high government official, high ranking official, who's been entrusted with a good part of the country's money. And apparently, essentially, what he's done is he squandered. He's used government money to engage in shady business. Never heard of anything that ever happened before, huh? <laughs> it happens all the time in the first century, too. He's squandered all the money. He's used everybody's money for himself, and, and, and it didn't work out. It's astronomical, this debt. And so essentially what the king's doing is he's, he's accounting for this, and he's, he just found out about it. And <laughs> these terms sort of blow over us, but in the first century, a day's wage was called a denarii, Okay? It would, just one talent would take literally half a lifetime of denarii, of earning wages, to to pay it back. 10,000 talents was the equivalent of 60,000 denarii. And what that means is, it would have taken 60,000 days, I'm sorry, excuse me, I got that wrong, 60 million. 60 million days of work to pay this off. And so here comes this man, and judgment day has come for him. And you know what? Justice has to be served. The king finds out, and he's saying, you're going to jail. Your family is. But even that wouldn't satisfy the dead. And so the man, the servant, what does he do? And we'll look at this in two weeks. Is this repentance or self-pity? I think it's pretty obvious. But he falls on his knees, and he starts begging the king for mercy. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He falls on his knees to the king, and he's doing what we do. He's He's stopping short, and he's just trying to broker a deal. He's just saying, more time. <laughs> I got a few more connections I didn't talk to. Just give, me, just give me a couple more days. But one of the things that happens, and it just, we're told in the English, it says the king was moved to pity, which is a pity because that doesn't really define it. It's a Greek word, spongdizomai. And it literally says in the Greek, the king was moved in his bowels to compassion, that's fitting. The word splung deezomai does sound like a bowel condition. Like, guys, pray for me. I'm battling splung deezomai right now. And too chicken wings at the Super Bowl party, you know? <laughs> it sounds like it. But do you know this? This is telling us the heart of Jesus because what's happening? Do you know that if you did a survey of every emotion that Jesus ever felt, do you know the number one is? He would walk up to a crowd and they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. They're afflicted. They're in pain. They're oppressed. And what did Jesus feel? Splung I? compassion. He feels it. The king is moved at the deepest core level, and he's moving towards the man, not away. But I want to be clear something about compassion. Do you know what compassion is not? Do you know what the king is not doing in his compassion? He's not excusing this. In his compassion, he's naming the wrong, and that's so important for us to understand. Because see, here in the South, you know what we do? We were like, oh, dead? What Dead? Oh, sugar, don't worry about those billions of dollars. (laughs) You know, oh, goodness, I didn't even know that. I didn't even notice we were missing all that. You shot my dog. Don't worry, sugar. You did me a favor. I was going to have to put that dog down in 10 years, you know. He's naming the wrong. And the king does something more than this man even asked. He says, in his compassion, what does he do? What does it say next? It says he released him. And what does it mean to release somebody when you've been wronged? What it means is is there's no double jeopardy. That's what it means. He's saying, I'm not sending you to trial again for this. I'm not going to spend my life seeking payback. I'm not going to nurse a grudge and lick my wounds forever and just subtly, manipulatively bring this back. I'm not going to keep replaying this over and over and over again in my mind. But the debt's still there somebody's got to do something about it right it doesn't just disappear like a fart in the wind we've been talking about bowels so might as well go there right somebody's got to pay this debt and the king says I will I will." Do you know what it means to forgive? Tim Keller, and if you don't hear anything else, I'm telling you what to do. Some of you are like, I want a list. Tell me what to do. I'm telling you what to do. By his last book he wrote for, he died on forgiveness. And one of the things he said is this, and it's just really helpful for us to understand. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering on the part of the offended. There's no other way around it. Now, wait a second, some of you are asking. We just settle in some of you are asking this question right now, but what happens to justice? What, if I do this, will it not be emotionally unhealthy? What, what happens? Remember, though, we've got to say this. Look, forgiveness means we name the wrong, there are still consequences, and in the case of a crime being committed, it doesn't mean you no longer pursue justice. You know, it doesn't always mean there's reconciliation, But what this is saying is we must forgive. And what that means is this, look, look, if you don't forgive, that harm is going to keep re-harming you. It's one of the hardest things, isn't it? What a tragic burden when somebody really wrongs you, okay? And when somebody just says, we just got to forgive that person, well, that's, doesn't, that's complex, but what Jesus is saying, if you understand his forgiveness, you must forgive. Because if you don't, they're going to keep re harming you. And actually, the way to get on from underneath that injustice is forgiving. Very sobering and very hard. I say with all humility, because I haven't walked some of the roads, some of y'all have. But how do we do this? Well, let's keep going, okay? Well, the answer to that. Let's talk about not how to do this. Okay, so one of the challenges of this passage, if you've fallen the the you know, as Ryan read and the Lord's Prayer, is it, it. If you just read it, doesn't it sound like it's sort of saying, "Well, here's how this works. You've got to forgive. So what? Who can forgive you? Rhymes, yeah, God. You're in church. Just go go for it. You know, it's not gonna. <laughs> I mean, just the odds are really good on that one. Okay." for you. So let's try it again. Here's how most people think of it. What do they say? You must forgive so that God can forgive. That's right. So years ago when I was a newbie, and, you know, preaching, and this is way at the Opportunity House, I preached on this sermon, and I, I'd say, well, that's wrong. Okay? And a man meets me at the end of the church, and he's clearly agitated. He's very really frustrated. He's you know, very condescending, letting me know I've led the you know, church astray and teaching this wrong, and of course I've not forgiven him since then. And... Um, <laughs> okay you are with me all right but remember the parable the king has already granted forgiveness and the man never asked for forgiveness but it's there and all he's got to do is accept that forgiveness and i want to be clear what does this parable really teach The the parable doesn't say look what will happen to you if you don't forgive people God's going to get you. No. The parable is this. Look what will happen to you if you do not receive and accept and base your life on God's forgiveness of you. And then go out into the world like that. But this man will have none of it. And it's befuddling. You know, he's been cleared of 60 million days worth of work. And he comes to this man. He's like, hey, look at me. Look at me. Do you understand what I just went through today? because you have not paid me back i almost lost everything today because of you i had to grovel like a freaking baby in front of the king to spare my butt because of you do you understand what an idiot i look like i'll probably lose my job because of you (laughs) very thespian this morning i want my money you imbecile get it to me now you know do you know what he did well certainly not splung deeds am i he did the very same thing that is one of the most attractive sins in the world. Oh, that ever so satisfying feeling of revenge. And it's befuddling. The king forgave 60 million days worth of work, a debt. Clearly, the point is, you'll never pay it. And this man, his subordinate, owes him maybe two to three months worth of work. Kind of odd, <laughs> What in the world is his deal? I'll tell you what his deal is. It's the same deal with you and I. Blaise Pascal puts it this way. Nothing is so important to man as his own state. Nothing is so formidable to him as eternity, and thus it is not natural that there should be men indifferent to the loss of their existence and to the perils of everlasting suffering. They are quite different with regard to all other things. They're afraid of mere trifles. They perceive them. They feel them. And in the same man who spends many days and nights in rage and despair for the loss of office or some imaginary insult to his honor is the very one who knows without anxiety and without emotion that he will lose all by death. It is a monstrous thing to see in the same heart and at the same time the sensibility to trifles and this strange insensibility to the greatest objects. It is an incomprehensible enchantment in a supernatural slumber which indicates as his cause an all-powerful force. Whatever you believe about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whatever your worldview is today, I will tell you every single one of us share this thing in common. No matter who you vote for, what football team it is, we have a perplexing contradiction living inside us. It's crazy. We don't understand the debt we've really been released from with God. We don't understand that when that debt, it was paid, justice had to be served. And then Jesus did it through his voluntary suffering of us. But we go out into the world and we hear that and we're like, cool, cool, I like that. You know, but you know what we really do? We get, go somewhere and also we feel a little slighted socially by somebody and now we want to destroy them. Somebody pulls out in front of you at the last second, they shouldn't have, and then they go 10 miles below the speed limit, and then turn off. They could have just waited. And now you've judged them as the world's worst person in the history of humanity. Okay, I'm sorry for the person who did that in the morning. I asked for forgiveness. (laughs) We ruminate. Oh, I know. We don't just ruminate. (laughs) We replay and reenact it. We go back through that scenario and we're angry and we're frustrated. And in our minds, we come back with that perfect comeback to obliterate them. We write him off. Trifles. Mere trifles. Well, it's highly unlikely this man was really liked. So, you know, clearly the man has basically squandered most of the country's wealth. And news has gotten around that, you know, he's been forgiven by the king, which people are just blown away by. And then he did this whole choking business. And so now one of his own subordinates has been put in jail by him. Okay? And... Here he is, you know, and the word gets back to the king. What does the king do? He hands him over to what he had really lived for. That's what he did. He doesn't just put him in. It's very disturbing. The man, the king, goes back to the original man, and and what he says is, okay, you don't want my forgiveness? That's fine. I'll give you what you really want, and he puts him in jail, and then actually now he's being beaten with rods. That's literally what it says what's the point? What does that mean? Here's what happens to a human heart if we don't forgive. If we don't receive God's forgiveness and don't go out of the world, it becomes like a prison. We start nursing grudges. We start licking our wounds. We start thinking about the score, how to get paid. We want the moral high ground. And then, oh, God, it gets worse. We start using our pain, how we've been hurt, as agency to leverage in the world to say, you have got to orbit around me. My pain. I've been wronged. And stay in a victim mentality. He's using the word, Jesus is brilliant. A brilliant thinker. He's using prison because this is just a great analogy. That's why. Because bit by bit, if you don't forgive, you'll start getting beaten down by it, won't you? You know this, don't you? Yoron Vandersloot came back in the news recently, if you don't remember that name. When I say the word Natalie Holloway in Aruba, then you probably do, don't you? And if you haven't followed the case for the last 20 years, from from time to time, I hear bits and pieces, and I just think, wow, what evil. This is a man who didn't just kill the Holloway's daughter, but, you know, he's bragged about it. He's bragged about it. He's lawyered up, used daddy money to protect himself at all costs and evade justice. But this past fall, I didn't even know how to process this article when I read it because Joran van der Sloot confessed finally. And he did kill Natalie Holloway if he didn't know that. We all suspected, obviously. But not only that, you know what he did? He asked the family for forgiveness. And then he said this. I've given my life over to Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian now, and I'm a changed man. I thought, oh, God, how hard is that for the family? After everything he's done to them, and now you're burdening them to ask for forgiveness? What do you even say? And I just want to be clear, I'm not judging the family here, because I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And I don't have any enemies because I'm such a forgiving person. But anyway, in theory, you know, he... (laughs) The father said, no way is that happening. I don't even trust you. I don't believe you. And what was he doing? He was basing forgiveness on conditions that would had to be met by him. And that's tough. My heart goes out. But I also, my heart really went out. I said, what a burden to carry that. Maybe to your grave of unforgiveness. Look, secular voices know this, right? You take Jesus out of this for just 10 seconds and you know Anybody would say. I'll admit I watched a little Oprah back in the day, and this is what you'd hear on Oprah, right? You have to forgive. Why? So you can be what? Set free. And that's true. Jesus is saying more. You don't just forgive for your sake. The only way it's even going to happen is if whether this, there's questions that were asked to Robert Smith, do you believe in my forgiveness? I want you to forgive others as I have forgiven you. How do we do it? you got to understand something. We have to understand forgiveness is a marathon. Viren Pierre, he put it this way. He said, forgiveness is neither easily offered nor easily lived. It requires daily working out, a daily willingness to look at the scars of injustice and choose to press deeper into grace instead of turning back toward anger and revenge. And over time, the land of anger and revenge will fade farther and farther from our view, but we don't get there quickly, especially when the wound is deep. That is why forgiveness is more like a marathon than a sprint. Some stretches are harder than others, and at times we go uphill against strong winds. You know, just four weeks ago, Fridays are like my day off, and I go on a big run, and my heart comes back to me in the best way possible and i'm in my better moments and It was actually at the end of the run and i was running like this with my arms up praying for somebody that i've really battled to forgive this person really hurt me and but i was in a really good space i mean just really praying lord i forgive and not only that lord bless them and i was thinking of how much i love them and begging lord show me what i've done because i've been asking for it tell me show me my stuff and bless 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 them and an hour later Someone tells me more stuff that they've done, and I'm back to ground zero. I felt like I was shoots and ladders, and I have right back and got all the way to ground zero. And I was almost like, well, I guess I've not even forgiven this person. No, I just hit a hill. I just hit a hill. So what do we do? I'm just, get your pen out if you want to, but I'm going to take us into some really practical things here and try to end very honestly, and then we're going to do this together, okay? But this a, lot of what, this a lot of this comes from Tim Keller's book, but I think we just need to really say, how do we do this? Well, first of all, let's talk about the process. Again, we need, to, we need to name the wrong. Don't act like you aren't hurt. That's not forgiveness, and that's not compassion. It's not forgiveness to be like, well, I didn't feel that. That's okay. It wasn't a big deal. That's not Honest, that's not true, and that's not emotionally healthy. Forgiveness means we, we don't pussyfoot around the truth here. It's true. You've been hurt, and it takes vulnerability to admit that, doesn't it? We, we mostly just want to admit, well, I didn't hurt, you know. We have to say, you know what? Time won't heal these wounds. I've got to deal with it. We do. And we can't deal with it until we admit we're actually really wounded. Two. I don't like this one. Skipping. Never mind. Let's go. Okay. Identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner. Now, you know what happens, right? You've been hurt by anybody. They immediately become one-dimensional, don't they? This is just, they're just that person. We start vilifying them in our minds and around others, and all we can see is their wrongness. There's no spong needs almost forgot how to pronounce it one of the most important things we can do is have the vulnerability not only to admit that we're hurt but also have the vulnerability to start saying wait a second god i've done that i mean i'm all blaze pascaling myself into trifles right now but you know what i know i do that too there's been so many times i've done that and not only that can we have the courage to start looking at that person and say, wait a second, I know their story. You know, it doesn't justify their actions, but they're very wounded. And hurting people hurt people. They just do. And I'm not excusing that. But it helps me have a little more spung deeds in I. And for me, one of the things I do is I try to imagine, especially when they're Christians, I say, wait a second now, do I believe that Jesus Christ's finished work is, doesn't apply to them? No, I believe the gospel. And I believe that as a Christian, you know what does that mean? Is Jesus Christ is going to finish their work in that person, and one day I will stand in front of them and be tempted to worship them. That's how beautiful they'll be. And if I can hold on to that and work backwards from there, we got a better chance of compassion. But here's the other thing. We haven't even gotten to forgiveness yet. We must release the wrong do- doer from liability By absorbing the debt, that means we must, as Keller says, renounce revenge. Whether you feel forgiveness at that moment or not, you're making a promise to forgive. You're promising to run the marathon. That's what you're doing. And what that means is is when you are tempted to rethink that and revisit it in your mind, you have to fight it. And when you think of that person, you've got to take your heart and speak well about this person to yourself and especially around others. You must speak well about them. You've got to challenge yourself to pray for them. To not just pray for them, but to pray, pray for their blessing and healing and reconciliation. And also, you've just got to accept that you're going to suffer while you do it. I mean, it's voluntary suffering. And then four, aim for reconciliation and restoration of the relationship. Ah, uh, I don't know what to say about that. I just This one's really brutal. I understand some can't. Someone, somebody you need to forgive is dead. Somebody you are burdened to forgive is a dangerous, unsafe, toxic person that you should have no relationship with. It would be unwise. But if it's possible... We must aim for reconciliation if we're truly serious about forgiveness. And I'm gonna just say this. There are a list. You and I are really good at this. We can come up with a list rather easy why we don't need to. It doesn't take very long for us to come out of our minds of all the reasons I don't need to. This one doesn't actually come from Keller. This actually came from Monday's Bible study from St. Sally Ward over here. (laughs) Uh, Lament, and what a beautiful, beautiful thing because here, here, here. When you're struggling with forgiveness, you're so full of anger, and anger is a protective measure, right? But prolonged anger, anger protects what we love, but prolonged, undealt with anger prevents, it doesn't protect. And so, it might be, and this kind of goes back to compassion, that we can just lament, you know, you walk, in, you, you, you walk into a place you and that person used to go to, and, you know, you just have the courage to say, you know, I really miss that time. Gosh, I remember watching that movie with that person. Oh, you know, well, I saw this. This reminded me, I, we would have talked about this thing, you know. Maybe you hear a song. And what if you just have the courage just to admit and be sad that things just aren't what they used to be, and that's okay. Forgiveness is not difficult. It isn't. It's just impossible, friends. Without what? There you go, because you're in church. You knew the answer now. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I'll briefly mention this, but, you know, Luke has this very similar, doesn't go to the parable, but in the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, one of the funniest things that happens is right after Jesus teaches all this, do you know what the disciples say to Jesus? They say, increase our faith, because <laughs> you know? it's hard. So how do we do it? We're going to do this last one together. This is the gospel. That everything you just saw that you're called to do, Jesus has already done for you. So I want you to close your eyes. Some of you are already ahead of us on that. I forgive you anyway. You're going to get the hives now, though. Just saying. Close your eyes. And right now, I want you to think of that person. I want you to picture that person. And as you simultaneously think about that person, and it's brutal, I want you to hear these things. I just want you to listen. Jesus has come to you and names your wrong truthfully. He didn't make excuses for you. He paid our debt for us. Because what are we told of Romans 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus had splung deeds of mine for you and me. Because you know what Jesus really did do? He actually identified with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner out of his rich compassion for us because 1 Corinthians 5.21 tells you and I That for our sake, he made him to be sin without, who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as you think about this person you're frustrated with, keep diving into the gospel and hear this. Jesus released you, the wrongdoer, from liability by absorbing the debt. He didn't retaliate. He didn't seek revenge. Rather, Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because what God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do, he did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, not you. And as you keep thinking about this person, hear this. Jesus did more than aim for reconciliation with you. He came to reconcile the world to himself by offering the restoration of this world. Because Second Corinthians also tells us, and all this is from God who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us really messed up people the message of reconciliation. And lastly, Jesus laments over what was lost. One of the most beautiful things that are in the gospel, the people who hate him, killing him, have done nothing to see their wrong. Just all I want to do is destroy him. Before he entered that city for his destruction and absorbing of that debt, he cried out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. And from his last words, Jesus pled for us. Father, forgive them. Do you believe in forgiveness, Lord? We believe, <laughs> but we also just want to say, help our unbelief. It is a burden. It's a call, but this is serious business, and this is how your kingdom works. It's ongoing. There are no limits to forgiveness. There are limits to other things. There definitely is justice, consequences, wisdom. <laughs> but we're called to forgive. So Lord, help us, not just, okay, we've got to do this. Lord, smash our hearts this week with how much we've been forgiven, because it's the only way. Forgiveness isn't hard, it's impossible without you, and we boldly say that in your name, amen.